Super cool lasers. It's both the statement and the subject of this week's episode. It's me, M. Muir, and welcome to my fact factory. This is WeSearch, a podcast where I talk to researchers about the work that they do and what makes them excited about learning. Before I start this episode, I really want to talk about something that I love about research. It takes so many forms, from reading or analyzing statistics to performing experiments or observing animals. The ways that you can learn something new are really limitless. With this show, I'm really, really excited to see the full breadth of research methods because there isn't just one way to learn something. Everyone has a way of working that's best for them, and different subjects require different ways to explore them. And that's okay. There's no wrong way to learn. I also wanted to thank everyone who is listening and telling me how much they enjoy the show. It really means a lot to me. If you want to financially support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash research. You can also support the show by telling a friend about it or sharing it on your Instagram story or writing a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everything helps and it makes doing the work that I'm putting into this a lot more worthwhile um, because it's just me. Um, That being said, because it is just me, I want to apologize for this episode being later than I initially planned to release it because I am just one person. I'm doing a lot of things right now and life gets overwhelming sometimes and that's okay. It happens to everyone and I needed to take a little time to breathe and be a human and learn everything that I needed to in order to make this episode as good as it can be. I appreciate all of the kind things that people have said when I said that this was going to be late. Just remember that your productivity is not your worth. As we discussed in the last episode, I want this to be something that I'm proud to make and proud to put out there. And at the time when I was trying to release this, I was not enjoying making this. I love making research, but at that point, it felt like it was a job and not something that I was enjoying making. So I needed to step back and figure out why I love making this so much. Um, and I did read How to Not Always Be Working by Marley Grace. And it is truly one of the best books I've read in a really long time. And it helped me reprioritize where I want to be in making this show, why I love making it, and how it's work that I love. So thank you all for kind words and support. It really does mean the world to me, especially in those times where I am struggling to get things done. I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of WeSearch is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash WeSearch and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's pretty easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash research. In this episode, we're going to be talking about physics, but in a hands-on way. My guest Hayden reached out to me on Instagram, and I was so excited to talk to him. Uh, He is a mechanical engineer turned aerospace researcher. Um, 
He is working on a grant with NASA while getting his master's degree to help build new ways to do long distance space travel and propulsion. So talking with Hayden was super fun. I learned so much and I really hope that you guys get as much out of this conversation as I did. A lot of the things that we talk about in this episode will reference some visual materials. I'm going to link all of those in the show notes on my website, which is at mmuir.com slash we search. You're going to be able to find all of the cool videos that Hayden talks about and different graphs and all sorts of neat things because as Hayden and I talk about later in this episode, there's no one single way to learn things. So without further ado, let's talk about lasers. Yeah, I ended up on this website that was like NASA for kids. I was like, okay, this is right. This is a great website. <laughs> okay, so who are you? Would you mind introducing yourself to everyone? <laughs> Howdy, everybody. So I'm Hayden Morgan. I'm an aerospace engineer currently at Texas A&M University getting my master's. I did my bachelor's at the University of Cincinnati in mechanical engineering. Um, and I've done a lot of stuff along the way. Recently discovered I really like rockets and decided to go for that. Nice. <laughs> so <laughs> you have a background in mechanical engineering. What made you like want to become an aerospace engineer? So when I was in high school, I came from a small farming community and the options were really trade jobs after high school. Not a lot of people, we didn't have a big engineering pro, uh, program at the school. So not a lot of people went on to become uh, college graduates or especially engineering majors. We did a lot of business, but not engineering. So I like to build things with my hands. I like the design. And on my last couple of years in high school, we had an uh, engineering professor come in and I was able to do a robotics program that really set me up. And he helped guide my path and knew what I like to do. And he was experienced in the field of engineering. And he's like, you'd align really well with these other paths. So I took what he said and what other people said who I talked to who have experience in the field. And they said mechanical engineering is the way to go, especially if you don't know specifically what you want to do yet. Because mm -hmm. in, in high school, everybody has a touch of, I have no idea what I want to do. <laughs> And if you do know what you want to do in high school, you're probably wrong. So Yeah, true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I had I had a lot of that and I just knew I wanted to build and I wanted to design. So mechanical engineering is right in that sweet spot where you can pick where you want what you want to do later. And that really fit well with me. When it came time to kind of change gears and you decided like maybe aerospace is something you wanted to pursue, what made you want to change tracks basically yeah so i also i went back to my high school uh right when i graduated and i gave a talk to a bunch of kids and i 
in my life, I realized there was three stages. The, I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> the, I know what I want to do, but I don't think I'm good enough to do it. And I know what I want to do and I'm going to do my best to make sure it happens. So I knew growing up that I liked rockets, but I, we'd always idolized aerospace engineers and the astronauts that did it. Uh, so I'm like, I'll, I'll stick to something else. And then junior year of high school, I, or junior year of college, I became really good friends with a bunch of my peers that changed my mind uh, and really pushed me. And I saw them succeeding and tried to better myself and ultimately decided to chase my dreams and then moved on to that stage three where doing my best to achieve my dreams. Nice. So yeah, I started doing research to like get more experience in the field because mechanical engineering doesn't teach you a lot about rockets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I reached out to a professor with the help of another, uh, one of those peers I mentioned, and they helped me get a research program started and I started learning about rockets. Nice. Um, okay, so I know that we've talked about how you were in a Hyperloop group while you were at UC. Do you mind talking about that? Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. So uh, my senior year, I was, uh, so I'll start about why I found or how I found Hyperloop. Um, like I said, I started to look for that professor and he was the advisor of the team at the time. Uh, and it was senior year of college. I had no idea if I was going to do a job after college or if I was going to go to grad school. Like I was actively applying to both and just trying to cash the big net as possible. And ultimately, I had not done any extracurriculars in college whatsoever. And I'm like, my resume looks okay, but I'm not going to stand out in my field. So I decided to do a lot of stuff. <laughs> and that included research. So I went down to try and find my professor. And I knocked on the door. And one of the team members answered. And he's like, oh, he's not here. But have you heard of Hyperloop? <laughs> and then next thing I was spending like 60 hours a week losing my mind trying to design this thing. And those of you who don't know, Hyperloop is a super fast ground transportation method meant to overtake uh, the Japanese bullet trains, if you've ever looked at those. Those top out at around the 200 to 300 mile an hour range, which is still insanely fast. But the reason they top out at that speed is because as you go faster and faster, you're fighting more and more air. So the more power you put into your, uh, your train to go faster, the more air is fighting you. And ultimately, it becomes a net zero equation. When you add more, you're just getting caught by the same amount of power. Um, so Hyperloop works by, you take a tube, you suck out all the air, and then you take this, essentially a train, you don't let it touch the railway. So you hover it with like how the mag, uh, magnetic bullet trains they do in Japan. You hover it so it's not contacting the surface at all. Uh, and then you send it down at about 700 miles an hour is the goal. So for you Midwesterners, that's Cincinnati <laughs> to Chicago in about 30 minutes. Damn. So something that would take four and a half hours now down to like your average work commute. Hey, did you know that if you traveled at 700 miles per hour, you could go the full 2,170 miles of the Oregon Trail in just over three hours? You know, a journey that took the pioneers and their little covered wagons about six months to make. If you've ever been to the bank teller and you put that like little pod in there and then it shoots up into the bank, that's essentially what's happening. Except there's no jet of air that pushes that little pod. So what's propelling it then if it's not 
a jet of air in something like as big as a Hyperloop. Yeah. So that's what the student competition comes down to is how do we, so SpaceX, it's run by SpaceX. And if you don't know SpaceX, Google SpaceX and lose your mind (laughs) about rockets and Elon Musk for a very long time. So they're the first private company to basically re-land a rocket on Earth from a low orbit and the first commercial spacecraft to deliver cargo to the International Space Station. Because they're a privately owned company, they're making incredible progress in public, and they hope to be able to provide humans with rides to the moon, Mars, space, or wherever their money allows them to rocket to. Uh, But it's put on by SpaceX, and they sent out a... Elon Musk did a white paper a while ago, and he had this idea for this transportation method, and then people started running with it. And ultimately, SpaceX was like, you know what? We'll get everybody together and host the competition. We'll provide the tunnel. Uh, you guys just need to get funding. And and then we also own all the intellectual property, which is a really good idea for them because yeah. they <laughs> are basically outsourcing a huge engineering problem to thousands of other schools that are doing a bunch of work for free for them. And all they have to do is put on a competition. Uh, so it's really good for them. Um, but these students, they come up with a scale model of how they imagine this, uh, this transportation method to be powered. So that there's right now there's contact propulsion, which is your normal wheels. So if you have your wheel on your car, you power those wheels. And then the friction between the wheels and the surface is what pushes your pod forward. There's a problem with that when you get to really high speed. It's So as you travel linearly, which is just straight line, flat motion, your wheels are going to need to spin faster and faster to keep up with that linear, that linear velocity that you're trying to achieve. And if you're going 700 miles an hour, your wheels are going to be spinning so fast. And that same force that if you've ever been on the tilt-a-whirl at a carnival, the same force that's keeping you pushed back against the wall would rip your wheels apart entirely. <laughs> so that's why... That's why you can't use normal wheels on something like the Japanese bullet train or anything going 700 miles an hour. And then you need to use like a non-contact form of propulsion. Yeah. So the wheel would literally just explode. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And that's not great for public transit. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So instead of that, they use uh, magnets and you can use magnets. I won't get too involved into it. Um, but you can get a special magnet arranged in a way that when you spin it really fast, it creates an electrical current. It, cre- it creates a magnetic field at the start. And then in some type of conductive material, like an aluminum I-beam, uh, it creates an electric current that also in turn creates an electric or a magnetic field back that fights the one that you created originally. And that gives you a repulsive force because if you know, the north side and the north side on a magnet, they'll fight each other. Yeah. So you're create you're creating that effect just at a much bigger scale, and you can lift a uh, pretty heavy pod. So University of Cincinnati's first Hyperloop team, they levitated half a ton with eight hover eight of those hoverboards. Okay. Yeah. So that's the lift part, and then if you were to tilt those uh, hoverboards a little bit more, you would get a forward movement. Okay. But that's really small. So there's a bunch of other teams that are using essentially a, basically a rocket engine on the back of it, but it's just cold gas. So it's like super compressed nitrogen that they send out a rocket nozzle Uh and it shoots you fast. 
So strapping you onto a rocket, but safely is the goal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So yeah, that's the Hyperloop. And it's, there's actual commercial companies right now working on developing the public transportation or the actual infrastructure. Uh So that's like, that's the hardest part because it's another intercontinental thing like the railroad was, which means the federal government has to regulate it and it has to be approved by the states going through it. And there's a bunch of legal issues that get involved with that. So that's one of the hardest downfalls. Like the technology could be ready in a couple of years, but will the infrastructure be ready to support it? Who knows? Okay. What is a vacuum? Basically, how are, how is a vacuum created? Because I know there's the vacuum of space where there's just no matter, but how do you create a vacuum in terms of the Hyperloop? So there's these things called vacuum pumps. And if you've ever worked with like a, or seen a water fountain, you know about water pumps. It's basically a way to displace a fluid or a gas or anything from there to somewhere else. And vacuum pumps essentially work on the exact same principle, except they take a gas out of a, out of a body that you want to create a vacuum. And then you put it somewhere else. In our case, it's into the room or into an exhaust line out of our room when we are simulating vacuums in our research. Uh, and the reason we choose vacuum is because, like you said, the vacuum of space. And the reason why space is a vacuum, it's not entirely a vacuum, but it's mostly completely empty. And it's just because if you were to take all the matter and then expand it into such a big a space as space is, uh, <laughs> then it, the the distance between those molecules is so small that the pressure is effectively zero. And that's why you get the vacuum, except for when you get to a planet where the gravity of the planet holds those gas molecules so close together that we have an atmosphere. Okay. Yeah. And then there's still uh, some particles that escape our atmosphere. Like it's it's definitely helium. And that's the big (laughs) problem is I bet you didn't think we were going to talk about the helium shortage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did not. So helium is a big thing. And as like, if we were to release it out of our party balloons, the helium wouldn't just like hang around in the atmosphere. It goes up into the upper atmosphere because it's so light and it's lighter than all the air molecules that are here. And then it just diffuses into the vacuum of space. Okay. So once, once we lose it, it's gone. Like there's no way we're getting that back. Okay. Um, which is why party balloons are the worst. I know they're <laughs> great, but your listeners shouldn't use party balloons. They're fun, but they're also the worst. <laughs> okay. Yes, exactly. And also they're like a big pollutant. So. Yeah, true. All right. Okay. Down with party balloons, the podcast. episode <laughs> two. So how did you discover what you do now? Is there anything kind of that really turned you to like changing gears or you know deciding that this is what you wanted to aim for more than anything else yeah I mean like I said in junior year of college I had those two friends one's currently working at SpaceX doing an amazing job and she's a big inspiration for me and then I have another really good friend who did a bunch of internships at NASA and she's currently at an Air Force Base doing incredible stuff so their work really inspired me to like know more about rockets and space and everything like that and get excited about it. But uh, once I started doing that, I was applying to grad school uh, and there's these things called fellowships for the people who have never applied to grad school. <laughs> it's basically 
this company becomes your sugar daddy and <laughs> they pay you to go to grad school for a while. Uh, hopefully, if you're lucky, they don't have strings attached and you don't need to work for a company after. Uh, but there's a big one called the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship Program, NSFGRFP. The National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship Program is a program that recognizes people pursuing research-based graduate degrees in STEM fields and financially supports their education and work. And they require you to essentially write a research plan. So I was thinking senior year, like, what do I write this about? Like, they want to see detailed understanding of a theory and how you would advance the science behind it. So I was looking at innovative space propulsion methods, mm-hmm. uh, and I was doing a bunch of Googling. I actually found, it's called, I was looking at mock effect thrusters, which are really goofy. They don't use any rocket propellant. They essentially shake themselves in the direction they want to go. So I reached out to the professor studying it, and we got on like a three-hour video call where I was telling them like, hey, I'm going to write about this for the NSF program. Um, also, would you be interested in having me as a graduate student if I get it or like get accepted into your school? Unfortunately, they didn't have an aerospace engineering program. They had a physics program. Uh-huh. And I still like to work with my hands. Not a lot of like theoretical physicists really get to do that. Yeah. So I wanted to stick with engineering, but I still wrote about it. So I still wrote about how I wanted to advance the science. Um, I wrote about writing about that in my application to Texas A&M. So I wrote about writing about that. And then a professor here, he was reading my application and he is working on a program, uh, another propulsion method here that is under the same NASA program. So they're basically cousins and use weird propulsion methods. And he saw my interest and he was like, this guy would be good to have on the team. So it wasn't a direct path. Like I currently work with lasers and particle beams, which we'll get into, but I had no, I had no idea what a laser was before I came down here. So this definitely wasn't on my path. <laughs> yeah. What, what is a laser? <laughs> All right. We ready for it? I'm ready. Tell me what a laser is. <laughs> well, let, I'll let you hit him with the acronym since you did the hard work looking it up. <laughs> If you want to explain the acronym. <laughs> yeah. So LASER is an acronym for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Boom. Yeah. Didn't, didn't know it was an acronym <laughs> until it. today. Right? Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. I love it. Nerd, space and science nerds really love their acronym. Mm-hmm. That's what we get into the field for is just the hopes <laughs> of creating an acronym. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so... The light amplification part. All right, so let's start with particles. So Hayden took me back to the magical time when I was 16 and took high school chemistry. If you don't remember that part of your life, don't worry, because chemistry was incredibly hard for me and I barely remember it now. So I'm leaving an entire two-minute segment of me getting wildly excited because I knew what an electron was in the extended episode that's available for my Patreon subscribers. And if that's you, hey! But anyway, here's the short version of it, plus a little bit more because I did get a little lost. So atoms are the fun little guys that everything is made of, and they're made of protons with a positive charge, electrons with a negative charge, and neutrons that don't have a charge at all and are neutral. 
Protons and neutrons chill out in the center of the atom, in the nucleus, and electrons live in levels around that nucleus. Those rings are sometimes called shells or energy levels, which each hold a specific number of electrons that determine how stable or volatile an atom is. Here we're going to talk about them in their orbitals, which are zones within the atom that electrons will most likely occupy. Each of these orbitals will always contain a maximum of two electrons and follow some pretty neat shapes that chemists and physicists can use to help figure out the way that these atoms behave and how they react with other atoms. The electron hangs out in one of those orbitals. Okay. And the more, the higher you get up on that uh, atomic number in the periodic table, the more protons and electrons and neutrons each of those atoms have. So it fills up more and more orbitals. And if you add energy into an atom, the electron would jump from one of the lower orbitals, like an S, it would jump up to a F, or it would jump up to a P, a D, or maybe an F. Um, and then if it suddenly drops down back to where that, back to the normal uh, ground state, as they call it. So when it's out at a higher orbital, it's called an excited state, and it naturally wants to decay to its ground state, okay. which is the, the lowest orbital is completely filled. Okay. Um, if you excite an atom, it really doesn't want to stay there. So when it decays back to its ground state, it usually emits a photon. Beep, beep. Here I come with the definition of a photon. Photons are essentially little bundles of electromagnetic energy all wrapped up into particles that transmit light. So photons don't have mass or electrical charge, but they can interact with matter, which we will be talking about very soon, I promise. Okay. And then lasers work on that principle by if you have a, basically a crystalline structure of some material and you have an electrical current going through it, you are exciting those atoms enough to where if you hit a photon at atom, or if you hit a photon at them, I shouldn't say atom real close because it <laughs> sounds like I'm saying atom. Yeah. Uh, uh, but if you hit them with a photon, then they will split, they will emit two photons. And then the two photons hit another uh, atom and become four photons, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's where you get your light amplification. Okay. Um, yeah, so did that, did that make sense? All right, so you have your atom. You mm -hmm. hit it with energy, basically. Mm -hmm. It releases a photon as it calms down from being excited mm -hmm. right and then yeah. the photons will cause other atoms to release photons correct because yes. you're so you're applying an electrical current to keep it at an excited state okay so that's how it's already there and then you use another photon to essentially knock it loose which gives you two photons because you have the one you started with mm -hmm. and then the one you just knocked off and then those go to cause a chain reaction. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we got that part? Yes. All right. Okay. You got me. Okay. So the good thing about lasers, so let's back up and talk about light. So you may have mentioned or remembered in passing that they say there's the wave particle duality of light, which is light behaves as a particle and a wave. So the particle is like the photon and you can, there's some applications where you can just think of it like, a normal atom, but it's a photon. And then there's other parts where you have to really think of it as the wavelength. And I saw you did some research on like 
the wavelength of light in the visible spectrum. Yes. Um, and how we can only see like a very small range of the spectrum of light. Yeah. Light travels in waves and we can only actually see some of them. The light that we can see is pretty recognizable. It's a rainbow. And every color of light that you can see corresponds to a different wavelength or the distance between the peaks in the wave of light. So if you think about the order of the rainbow, Roy G. Biv, the color red has the farthest apart wavelengths and purple has the closest together wavelengths. Outside of the rainbow, those wavelengths are either too far apart for us to see, those are infrared and all of the kinds of radio waves, or too close together for us to see, those are UV, X-ray, and gamma rays. Lasers are a type of artificial light where all of the wavelengths line up and travel together to form a very bright, very focused beam of light. Lasers have a ton of uses, but most of them involve the fact that the beams can travel a long distance and concentrate energy into one single point. So that's where it becomes more of a wave. And the wavelength is basically, if, have you ever seen a sinusoid wave? So that's your, that's your wave. That's your photon traveling in a wave. Uh, so the wavelength is the distance between the peaks or the zero points for a complete revolution. Sinusoids are basically squiggly lines. They're the smooth curve that you get when you plot a sine function on a graph. They're kind of like the squiggly line in the album art for this show. Wink, wink. Uh, if you have some that are out of phase, so if one's at a positive peak and then one's at a negative peak and peak, and then if you sum those up, you get like a flat line at zero. Yeah. So waves do the same thing, and that's... So that's, if you go into acoustics with sound waves, that's how you can get like noise canceling headphones or uh, it's called destructive interference. So basically I send a sound wave at another sound wave that cancels it out Okay. because it's the exact opposite of the wave I'm seeing. Okay. And with a laser, you want the light all to be at the same frequency because you don't want it to cancel out. Okay. So yeah. So you want it to be in the exact same phase and the same frequency because you're trying to shoot the same frequency of light out all coherently. You like, you don't want to cancel out anything and lose power out of the laser. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the cool things about lasers is it's all in the same phase and same frequency. Okay. So do lasers happen naturally? Uh, or are they something that only happens with artificial light, like a laser pointer? That's a good question. I mean, most sources <laughs> of light, like the sun, they emit a really broad band of light. Yeah. So, yeah, the radiation part of laser, it's the ER, the emission of radiation. Uh -huh. So electromagnetic radiation is just light. We use the terms interchangeably, but most commonly you'll hear okay. light referred to as like the visible spectrum, yeah. the small wavelength that we can see. Yeah. But Everywhere down from microwaves up to gamma rays, which there's x-rays in there that most people know, and radio waves, um, those are all forms of electromagnetic radiation and light. It's basically okay. a wave traveling with either a really long wavelength or a really short wavelength. Okay. Um, so there's the sun, which creates ultraviolet rays as well, which we can't see. Um, and then there's some stars that create like microwaves. Uh, we create radio waves naturally. Um, yeah. 
Okay. So that's that's the ER part. Okay. Um, but as for do lasers occur naturally, I don't think so. All right. So do lasers happen naturally? In 1995, NASA put out a press release that the first ever naturally occurring lasers were spotted, and they came from a star called MWC 349, which is, quote, a young and very hot luminous star in the constellation Cygnus. So how does this happen? The infrared light that the star produces shines on a dense cloud of hydrogen gas that surrounds the star, which causes them to produce light at the exact same frequency. So lasers do happen naturally. They just don't happen super frequently in ways that would directly affect us or that we can even see. Now that I know what a laser is, I had to know. Why do cats love them? The answer doesn't have much to do with the physics of the lasers or the way that the light looks, but it has to do more with what lasers make cats and us think. So in some studies done on humans and not cats, researchers aim to figure out how we attribute motion and certain changes in that motion to whether or not something is animate or alive. A series of experiments done by Pratt et al. showed that people, and by extension a lot of animals, noticed and paid more attention to animated imagery and changes in motion than they did to static images or predictable motion. But why? We can guess that it has to do with the way that our animal brains and diets evolved. Food that moves, prey, tends to be a better source of protein that we need to survive. So we notice movement so that we and cats can hunt it. So cats, like chasing lasers because they think it's a live prey, Probably. <laughs> um, okay, so you mentioned that you have been working uh, to do research in a program that's kind of sponsored by NASA, right? Yes, what, correct. What do you so, do at that? So it's a interesting funding by NASA. It's called the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. So the NIAC is for short. Um, one of the goals of NIAC is basically we want to go to the next star system, which is Proxima Centauri. That's about four and a quarter light years away. And light years is actually a measure of distance, not time. It's the time. Uh, yeah, well, it's, isn't it's it the, the distance, distance light that light travels. travels in a year? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so <laughs> it's the actual distance and it's four and a quarter light years away. So if we were going to send a spacecraft that way, we would have to go almost the speed of light, or a significant portion of the speed of light to see it in our lifetime. Okay. And one of the big things about humans and our funding is if we're not going to see the dividends in our lifetime, like why do we invest in it? Yeah. Which, which is why we don't have any funding for global warming <laughs> or climate change. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which, so the purpose of one of the goals of NIAC is to just get, send a probe that way, but also bring it back in like one human's lifetime. So that's what my research group is working on right now. So it's under, it's a funding group by NASA, but I am not a NASA employee, unfortunately. I'd love to be. And if anybody's working at NASA that listens to this podcast, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully this will be the hookup for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my goal. That'd be great. Yeah, so this is just... You're doing research with your university that is being funded by 
part of NASA in order to advance NASA's breadth of knowledge. Correct. Yeah. So actually, there's a lot of programs that do something similar. Like there's the Department of Defense and Department of Energy, uh-huh. the U.S. government, that do this thing called Small Business Innovative Research Contracts, or SIBRs. And they basically release a request for proposals to a, like out to the public. And bit, small businesses uh, partner with universities, and they come up with a plan to tackle this project. And the government will give them a phase one and a couple hundred thousand dollars to say, show us what you got. And then if they like what they have at the end of a certain amount of time, they come back, they get a phase two, which is a couple million. Uh, and then they like they advance the technology significantly. So hopefully the goal is the point where they can actually market it. Okay. So, yeah. So NASA is doing something similar, but it's not a marketable product. It's the advancement of science. Okay. As far as, you know, what you're doing on that, what are your responsibilities within that, like, research group? Yeah. So I work in the Laser Diagnostics and Plasma Devices Lab at Texas A&M, and we're broken into a bunch of different projects. So currently, um, my... Our research professor is Dr. Christopher Limbach, who's a great guy, actually takes the time to teach you things and like make sure you understand them. Uh, but he leads about six or seven students, uh-huh. and the grad students all have their own individual projects. Okay. So um, one of the researchers that I'm friends with, she works on um, basically how do hypersonic aircraft measure the... Um, humidity of the air in front of them, the temperature, everything that could affect their flight, how do they measure that? And then she's working on a method for that. Okay. Uh, We have another guy who's characterizing plasma and another guy who's trapping particles with light and plasma and then spontaneously combusting them and seeing how (laughs) that plasma behaves. And then there's my project, which is space propulsion. Okay. Um, So we cover a gambit of things, but my actual responsibilities... Uh, we currently have two undergraduate students that I try to advise. Okay. Um, basically, we do not have any of the systems set up for any experiments yet. So we don't have a vacuum chamber that's capable of doing the experiment we want. So I've been I've been spending the summer designing the actual vacuum system, ordering parts, building it, and then we're getting to testing soon. So I should be testing before Christmas. How do you, like, build a vacuum chamber? Like, what is it? What is, like, the purpose of the vacuum chamber for your experiments? Yeah, that's a good point. I never really explained why <laughs> it matters. Uh, so the vacuum chamber, uh, it's basically how we simulate space. So if we're making a space propulsion system, we want to remove the effects of atmosphere. So we want to get rid of the, all the air we have and basically send out uh, what we expect to see in space. Okay. So... We take this big metal box, which there's companies that make uh, vacuum chamber parts. It's basically adult Legos, uh, (laughs) but for really high vacuum. Uh, Okay. So that's actually a challenge on its own is how do I get really high vacuum? So high vacuum equals really low pressure. Okay. uh, Which is kind of (laughs) confusing. But there's low vacuum, there's high vacuum, and then there's ultra high vacuum, which is basically... Ultra high vacuum is the closest you can get to space. Okay. And it's, yeah. So it's like as close to zero uh, pressure as you can get. Okay. 
Um, so we want to remove the effects of air. So we have this big metal box mm-hmm. that we have our propulsion method in. Okay. And then we send it down. We want to see how it works. And then we basically end it and then collect the data. Um, but it all needs to be in vacuum over a couple, about two meters long, two or three meters long of a okay. distance, which is actually a challenge when it comes to making a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's like so big? Yeah, it is really big. Like... And I'll actually... Go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying, like, it's so big that you have to concentrate on getting all of that stuff out of such a large space, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we have this big metal octagon that holds holds the actual source of our particle beams, which I'll dive into more when you ask me about that. <laughs> um, but so there's the big octagon, and then we have a smaller uh, vacuum chamber that is where we house our beam dump. So that's basically where we end the experiment and the particles end their life. And that was dark too. They can <laughs> they go from being a gas to a solid at the beam dump, so they're not going around the vacuum chamber everywhere. Okay. Um, so in in between those vacuum systems, we have a glass tube, which is very scary for because as you take the air out of the center you create a pressure differential, which is basically there's air on the outside that is compressing this glass tube Uh all around it. And you know glass. Glass is not the greatest at (laughs) being structurally sound. So we need that glass for something I'll describe more when I get into the research part of it. I definitely want to dive into what you're actually researching now. Um. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about your research. So you you had sent me kind of like a a website about what you're working on right now. So that was self-guided beam propulsion for breakthrough interstellar missions. So what is, what does that mean? <laughs> All right. So it's best if we break it down. So okay. let's start by the overview. We are combining lasers and particle beams together to make a better propulsion system. So we already kind of talked about lasers and how they behave. Um, One of the big takeaways to add on to, bless you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) One of the big, I hope you leave that in. (laughs) I have like a really stupid sounding sneeze. So like if I do, people are going to be like, what was that? (laughs) Because that happens. (laughs) I didn't know you could have a stupid sounding sneeze. Oh, yeah. Okay. It just sounded like a... Like a big sound. Okay. But, all right. All right. Uh, so, I'll listen back and see. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Um, okay. But light has a momentum. So if you, if anybody who listens has heard of the light sail or the light sail two, um, or is a big Bill Nye fan. So Bill Nye <laughs> and he is the current chair. I think he's the chair or the president of the Planetary Society. Yeah. Planetary Society? Or Foundation. It's the Planetary Society. They crowdfunded a satellite that uses, that's just a giant sail, and it uses light to basically give it momentum to push it to a higher orbit, make it go faster, or slow down. Um, so light transfers momentum as a function of its wavelength, or okay. actually as a function of its frequency. So like those gamma rays I talked about earlier those would transfer more momentum um, 
So like you can harness the high frequency light from the sun and make a spacecraft that just rides that wave, rides that push. And you could use that as your propulsion method. Okay. Um, uh, I'm trying to like wrap my head around that. So I know that because it's like waves happening and light is a form of energy, how is it harnessing that energy? Is it kind of like a giant solar panel? <laughs> kind of. So where a solar panel takes that energy from the light and converts it to like an electrical energy, it's a, it's, so it's a function of Planck's constant, which is a universal constant that some guy with the last name Planck, <laughs> uh, he found earlier. And it takes that divided by the wavelength yeah, it takes that divided by the wavelength, and that's your theoretical momentum transfer. And that's, for a photon, that's really small, because Planck's okay. constant is on the order of 10 to the negative 34, which is a very small number. So you need a lot of photons in order to get something. Planck's constant is the ratio of a photon's energy to its frequency. It's incredibly teeny tiny. It's 6.626 times 10 to the negative 34th kilogram times meter squared per second. So that's essentially so teeny tiny. This allows you to relate the amount of energy to the frequency of the light. So by the discovery of Planck's constant, we learned that energy can only come out in specific chunks called quanta. So all of the energy released is basically one or two or three times Planck's constant. Um, so that's essentially a measure of the energy of the light. And if you remember E equals MC squared, but it's basically like that C squared term is uh -huh. basically like the speed of light. And then you have your energy side. Um, there's okay. no mass of a photon, but it's all energy. And that's why the speed of light is constant. Okay. So yeah, you can't like light can't go faster than the speed of light. It's fixed. That's okay. the universal uh, speed limit is the speed of light in a vacuum, <laughs> at least. All right. So basically all we need to know is the light sail exists and uh -huh. it uses the energy from light to travel. Correct. Yeah. So Great. it uses it as its propulsion <laughs> method. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Still confused? Much like the light sail, this went a little bit over my head. So here's info directly from the Planetary Society's website. Light is made of packets of energy called photons. While photons have no mass, they have momentum. Great, we know this. Solar sails capture this momentum with sheets of large reflective material like mylar, which is what balloons are made of. As photons bounce off the sail, most of their momentum is transferred, speeding up the sail in the direction opposite of the bouncing light. So unlike chemical rockets that provide short, powerful bursts of thrust, solar sails provide continuous slight thrust and can reach higher speeds over time. Sunlight is free and unlimited, where rocket propellant must be carried into orbit and stored on board a spacecraft. Basically, what this is saying is that photons from light is a better source of momentum than using rocket fuel because it's a renewable resource. Uh, so we have that. So light transfers momentum. Um, let's talk about particle beams. So okay. Actually, let's talk about rockets. So okay. Uh, so currently, the way we get anything to space is we take a rocket, which is a bunch of fuel stored into chemical energy. Um, so you have either a solid rocket motor, which is solid fuels burning together, 
or you have a liquid rocket engine or a hybrid of the two. Um, but basically it combines two fuels and an oxidizer and basically combusts it. And then as it combusts, you go into a supersonic nozzle, which just means we take this gas and we accelerate it faster than the speed of sound just to get the most momentum transfer. Because if you were just going to have an open channel and it never reaches the speed of sound, you're losing out on a lot of that uh, momentum. Because the momentum is a function of, should be mass and velocity. So if you can maximize the speed at which you put the air out of your rocket nozzle, you can increase the momentum in which you go up. Yeah, so that's how we send rockets into space, is we have the fuel. <laughs> just a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. just a lot of it. And that's the problem, actually. So we, when we were first starting to go to space during the Cold War and everything, we the Russians actually figured out the rocket equation. And it's basically, you need to have a certain amount of mass. And that means the more mass you have, the less force, or the more force you need to accelerate. So if you're trying to escape Earth and you have a super massive rocket with just a bunch of fuel, it might be too massive to fly. If you, if you were going to have a huge rocket with a bunch of fuel, you would need to strap on a bunch of other rockets. So that's why there's rocket boosters, which are basically... We have our main central rocket, and then we have these boosters that are also filled with rockets. So you have four or five or six, however many rockets uh, you need going at the same time. And if you're into SpaceX, the Falcon 9 has nine rocket engines. So as you go up, you can shed those boosters, which sheds your weight, which means the force of that single rocket engine you have in the center, that's doing more work now that you got rid of your mass. So you're talking about the limitations of using like rocket, traditional rocket propulsion? Yeah. So basically it's, you need to shed more mass in order to go up. So like if you've ever seen rocket staging where they separate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's basically them shedding unneeded mass. So the rocket engine that they do have on there, it's not hauling that extra mass with it. So it can accelerate faster. Okay. So, so that's the point of rocket yeah. staging. Okay, so that's why there's like a teeny tiny rocket on the inside and like inside of that huge giant thing. Exactly. So okay. like when you're in when you're up in the upper atmosphere, you're not uh-huh. fighting that much air. So yeah. you don't need a huge rocket up there. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause I definitely have seen that uh the capsule that they have at Wright Pat. And I was like, oh, this is little. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah, real the little small. guy, yeah. Yeah. And those big rockets that they yeah. strap it onto, and it's just for that small little payload. I asked my friend who works at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force is, to give me his official review of the scale of rockets. So, how big are fuel tanks? They big. And the capsules that the astronauts were in? They small. There is... There was like a plan for what's called single stage to orbit, which basically says I have my rocket on the ground Uh and I want to launch just this with no separations or losing the extra mass. Yeah. Um, But nobody has really done that super successfully. It's all been rocket staging. And the best we've been able to get with that is SpaceX relanding those boosters. If you've ever seen that where they just land back at the launch pad. Yeah. Yeah, so that means they can just reuse those instead of, like, back in the day when the stages separated, they were just designed to burn up when they fell back to the earth. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then, like, once, when they landed, they have to, like, parachute into the ocean yeah. to have, like, a safe landing. Yeah. That sort of thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so, essentially, what the next stage of, like, rocket propulsion is, is we go, we use one rocket to go up and the same one to come back down in the whole piece, right? Th- that's some people's goal. Yeah. Um, but okay. other people like to still have the multi-staged orbit. It's just simpler and the rockets are getting better. Um, but the problem with that is the the chemical rockets that use the fuel are really inefficient. So rockets use this term called specific impulse, and it's basically how efficient is my rocket? So how much am I expelling versus how much thrust do I get out of it? Okay. Um, and these chemical rockets are really bad at it. So (laughs) when we get into space, you're not fighting a bunch of air. You just need to like have a really efficient thruster that works over a long time and then okay. you can go really fast. Okay. So the propulsion method I'm working on is it means the spacecraft doesn't need to store the fuel on it, which means it can be really light. And okay. the, the actual propulsion method is stored on the earth or in a close or- orbit satellite. Okay. So it's not sending like a multi-ton spacecraft over to Proxima Centauri. It's sending like a kilogram, which okay. means, yeah. It doesn't have to carry a super amount of chemical fuel. Okay. Interesting. So how are you doing that then? So now we can get into particle beam. Yeah. So if you, so back with rockets, if you were to combust the fuel and then you send it out of a supersonic nozzle, I do the same thing, but it's on a really small molecular scale. So we take what's a metal called rubidium. If you look on the, left side of the periodic table is an alkali earth metal. Um, it's one of the ones if you've ever looked, been on YouTube late at night and you look <laughs> at the uh, throwing sodium into water or throwing lithium into water. It's probably not, it's not lithium. Potassium. Sodium, potassium, yeah. and rubidium. Um, they it make a big explosion. Yes. It, so I do metal. know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we take that metal, we take rubidium, and we heat it up really high, and then we take away the pressure, which, if you're ever familiar with, like, um, pressure cookers. Yes. Do you know pressure cookers? Yes. So if you increase the pressure, you can get the water hotter, which yes. means you can cook your food faster. Because water always boils at 100 degrees Celsius when it's in open atmosphere. But yeah. if you increase pressure, it gets hotter and then boils. Um, oh, okay. So if you lower the pressure then it boils sooner. So we take that uh, solid metal rubidium, we heat it up, we take out all the pressure, and that allows it to turn into a rubidium gas. Mm-hmm. So you normally don't think of a metal as a gas, but these are just uh, gaseous metal particles that are in this chamber. And then the pressure increases so much that they go through a really small supersonic nozzle. And then they just, ex- it, basically how a rocket works, they accelerate out, and that's what we want to use. We want to use those particles accelerating out. Uh, but the problem with that, and if you were going to try and send those out in a straight line, do you remember how particles, like, they shake back and forth and they oscillate everywhere? Yeah. So that's, on a macroscopic scale, like, if we have particles moving back and forth and colliding together in a, in a chamber, we call that temperature. Yeah. Yeah, so... The more the particles shake around is called temperature. The more they interact and collide with the wall is called pressure. Okay. Uh, so with these molecules 
shaking all around and moving every which way, they're going to collide with each other and then they're going to smack themselves off into space and not go straight anymore. Okay. Um, so basically as the temperature rises, the more pressure builds as like a kind if, of general If you're in a solid container. Okay. Yeah, but if you're in the vacuum of space, as temperature increases, your molecules are just going to smack into each other and then go off into space randomly. Okay. Yeah, so when we accelerated out of the supersonic nozzle, we have a really hot gas, and the temperature er, and the particles are just shaking everywhere. So we wouldn't be able to get a straight jet to our spacecraft. Okay. Uh, because they would just go everywhere, every which way. And the reason we want particles is because they have a much more efficient momentum transfer than light does. Okay. Because it works on traditional momentum. So basically how like car wrecks or anything hitting anything transfers momentum, particles work on that. And it's not okay. a function of Planck's constant, which was 10 to the negative 34. So that's why we want the particles. <laughs> okay. So... Is this what you're talking about when you, you've been mentioning particle beams? Is it just shooting the particles through those nozzles, essentially? And then a little bit extra. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So it's basically <laughs> you take that metal, uh, that metal gas exhaust, um, and then you do something called laser cooling, which if you think about it, it sounds like it can't exist because how does a laser <laughs> cool anything? Like... Yeah. You know, if you put a laser on something, it would heat up. So basically, we tend to think of lasers as things that are hot and burn or blast other things away. And that's true in a sense. The Nobel Prize described this innovation in physics as, quote, atoms floating in optical molasses, which is one, hilarious, and two, makes sense. But like, what does that mean? Lasers can cool things down? Actually, yes. Laser cooling doesn't work like putting something warm in the fridge to cool it down. It works by essentially trapping molecules where they are and forcing them to move more slowly, which makes them cool down. In laser cooling, lasers are being blasted at something, molecules, which are always in motion. The hotter the molecules are, the faster they'll move and bounce around in the space that they're in. So how do you stop something that's in constant motion? Shoot a laser at it, obviously. The force of the light wavelengths coming from the laser are just enough that it slows down or even halts the force of the molecules moving in the direction opposite of the laser. To get them to slow their roll in most directions, the solution is to fire lasers from all of those directions. Hayden sent me a really helpful video to explain this because I definitely needed a visual on it. I'm going to link it in the episode notes at mmure.com research if you want to get a better idea of how this works. Yeah, so you're so think of it as like you're shaking, uh, what's something that shakes? A maraca? Yeah. Okay, yeah. you're shaking a maraca. So you're shaking a maraca and okay. all every which way. So up, down, left, right, back, forth. Yeah. Um, and then you have a person poking uh, the maraca in one of those directions that stops you from shaking it in that direction. Okay. So you're basically essentially stopping the movement of the particle in six directions, which means it's not oscillating oh. back and forth, which yeah. means it doesn't have temperature. Okay. So it gets rid of the temperature in okay. the molecule. So now it's a stationary particle moving at the speed you send it out at. Okay. 
Does that that make makes a lot more sense. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Perfect. it's a maraca. It's a maraca. <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> so, so we do that, and that means the particles aren't hitting each other anymore because they're just an orderly line of particles going out towards the spacecraft. Yeah. Okay. So still they would heat up over time it, uh -huh. as like photons from the uh, sun eventually hit them. They would like heat up. So uh, over time they would start to get in, um, they would start to heat up and then start to smack in each, into each other more. And another problem with light is as you go further and further, light starts to diffuse over a certain area. So like you may start with a small little area of your laser, but as you get further and further out, it's a much wider area. So if you ever shine like a laser beam at the moon. Uh -huh. you, yeah, so like where you just shoot it like up, basically. Yeah. 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 And then you notice the area in the sky is actually pretty huge. Yeah. So that happened. <laughs> that would happen with us, too. And as we got further away with the spacecraft, it would just we wouldn't be hitting it with a lot of photons and the momentum would stop. OK. So where my research comes in and. I should mention that people are doing, as you can see with light sail too, they're using that as lasers as a, whew, they're using light as a <laughs> propulsion method already. Yeah. And then there's also people using particle beams as a propulsion method already. Yeah. Um, so where my research comes in and why it's innovative is uh, somebody won the Nobel Prize in the early <laughs> 2000s. I should probably look up his name. Dr. Stephen Chu, Claude Cohen Tanuji, and William D. Phillips were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1997 for their work on supercool lasers. Supercool as in lasers that can lower temperatures and freeze atoms, but their research was also pretty dang neat. Also unrelated, but definitely important, there's a very delightful quiz on the Nobel Prize website that was at the bottom of the page <laughs> that I got a lot of this information from that matches you with a female science laureate and tells you about their work. So I love a good quiz and I obviously took it immediately and I got matched with Francois Bauré Sinoussi who isolated the virus that would later be named HIV and she won the prize in 2008. New hero, yes, absolutely, great quiz, 10 out of 10. But he won a Nobel Prize basically describing how particles, supercooled particles interact with high intensity light, which is a laser. Um, and it's basically they guide each other. So the particles gravitate towards the high intensity light at the center of a beam. So if you were going to put a particle beam and a laser together in the same axis, uh -huh. shoot them together, the particles want to go to the high intensity light. And then the light keeps reflecting off the particles. So your laser is no longer diffusing over a larger, larger area. It's staying confined within the particles. And the particles are staying connected and drawn into the beam. So that means we can have a spacecraft that's like a light year or so out, but we're still hitting it with particle beams. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, this makes a lot more sense now. Good. So it's basically like as if going back to pointing a laser pointer at the moon it's like that light is still it's not gonna like kind of disappear and you not see the dot at the end of the laser it's like as if you keep if you can see that far you can keep seeing it right <laughs> correct yeah at the, at the same okay. area as if it was yeah. coming out of your laser pointer yeah yeah okay that's yeah, so and, cool yeah and the point of that is just so you can 
keep as much of that momentum material to the light and the particles as possible. Okay. Over the long distance. Um, <laughs> but my group is divided into a simulation side, and I'm the experimental side. Okay. So we have a group doing simulations in MATLAB, which is a coding software that basically says, how are these particles going to interact with the light? And then we need to prove that code with my experimental data. Okay. So if we prove it with my experimental data, they can run more complex simulations and hopefully not change too many variables and assume it's accurate. So basically they're kind of making a model and then you make the model in real life and say, yes, it does work or no, it doesn't work. And they use that to improve their model. Yeah. Right? And, the, yeah and then they apply it okay. to the actual propulsion method and then it theoretically it should work. That's awesome. Oh my God. Sorry. I'm like getting very excited about this. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. <laughs> okay. So uh, just like in general, what are the goals of the project? So the goal of the project is actually pretty cool. So we are trying to get a propulsion method that could send a spacecraft to Proxima Centauri and look at, so there's an exoplanet there that we don't know too much about and exoplanets uh -huh. are just planets of other solar systems but the goal like a small goal at nasa that they don't really advertise and it's not really on it's a group of people's like on the mind all the time but it's yeah. like what can we find another planet that could sustain life for us or yeah. is currently sustaining life so we haven't had a good way to image these planets like yet because it's so far away so we want to send a flyby mission to take pictures and sensor data um, and bring it back in a human lifetime. And the only way we can do that is if we go a significant speed of, uh, proportion of the speed of light. So we're planning to go 7 to 20% the speed of light, which is insanely fast. It makes it faster yeah. than any other spacecraft we've ever created. Um, so I, in the words of Ricky Bobby, now. To anyone out there who wants to go fast, anybody. I want to go fast. I, I I like the Sonic. Gotta go fast though. Yeah, gotta go fast. Okay. In the words of Sonic, you gotta go fast. Gotta go fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Do you know like what percentage of the speed of light a normal rocket goes at? Well, so the fastest, I think the fastest spacecraft we've ever had is the Voyager 2. Um, and that was basically our first deep space mission, which is basically, they put a, um, a golden record on it with uh, details on about the human race on it. Yeah. Um, and basically we're just like, hey, if there's aliens, maybe they'll get it someday. Yeah. And I think not too long ago, <laughs> it just left our solar system. And we sent, when did we send that? Voyager 2 was 1977. Okay, so actually the Parker Solar Probe, which was the fastest, and that was a pretty recent one. Okay. Okay, so the Parker Solar Probe, that was the fastest thing we've ever created. And it travels 150,000 miles an hour, which is 0.02% the speed of light. Dang. Yeah, 0.02% yeah, the speed of light. So if we were going to go, let's say, 7% the speed of light. We really got to step up our game here <laughs> to get this. Right? Wow. Yeah. So times 0 0.07. 
So that's 46, 47 million miles per hour. Ah! <laughs> Which is 305 times faster than the Parker Solar Probe. Yeah, so a really, really fast spacecraft, which is why I got super excited when that professor called me about the project. Yeah. Told me how fast it was going to go. Oh, man. This is so cool. Right? <laughs> I love it. Dang. And I love... I I just kind of love that, like, the the fact that this ties back into Hyperloop is, like, here's how this can directly benefit, you know, us on a, like, regular everyday level, too. Yeah, so that's the thing I like. So Hyperloop helps you every day with your commute to work, and then the stuff we don't think about is what we're doing in space and how that comes back to help us later. So, like, looking for a new planet once Bart governments keep acting the way they're acting and we ruin the planet uh where do we go from there yeah so it's good to have places charted out now and i mean there's people who think why do we study space when we have problems down here and i mean we haven't even finished charting like the oceans yet and we're still trying to figure out space and if we stop to like finally finish one of those things like if we hadn't gone to space till we charted the oceans we may never have been to space yeah. Um, it's all about pushing the envelope, starting early, and then coming back, and that being the new frontier that everybody's aiming towards. And then yeah. those benefits come back and help everybody. And I think it also is like there are so many things that you learn as a result of this, whether or not it is intentional. Like, I know NASA has produced so many cool things that are like kind of basic to us now. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like memory so, foam mattresses. Yeah. Boom. So wild. I off topic. What is your favorite space movie or book? So it's tied between Interstellar and The Martian. Okay. Um, I kind of assumed you were gonna say The Martian for some reason. I love The Martian because <laughs> I love Matt Damon, but he's in both. Um and The Martian is actually kind of scientifically accurate. Like they really cared about that. Andy Weir, the guy who wrote uh The Martian. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Uh he was at, he actually cared about the science a lot and i think his background is in engineering uh but i love the martian the only i think i remember reading that the only scientific inaccuracy that they had the biggest one was the sandstorm on mars and how they're not actually that big and nothing like the antenna could come off and hurt them like that so the main point of the plot but like that's it <laughs> it's not Just like flying through a black hole in interstate yeah <laughs> but the music in Interstellar is great. Shout out Hans Zimmer. God, he is. Mm. Mm. He is the best. Mm. Chef's kiss. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. Okay. So back to talking about research. I'll like edit that to be at the end of the okay. thing. The chef's kiss. Yeah. The, the sign off. Yeah. This this interview is chef's kiss. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. This episode of WeSearch is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering research listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you go to audibletrial.com slash research, you can browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's easy peasy. Go to audible.com slash research to get started today. So why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, 
comedy, and even more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And I'm not just saying this because they're sponsoring this episode of We Search, but I really genuinely love Audible. So full disclosure, I interned there for a semester and it's a company that I genuinely loved working for. And I've recommended them to so many people because I love audiobooks so much. So as I talked about with Hayden in this interview, finding a learning style that works best for you is really a game changer when it comes to having fun while learning. And Audible really changed my life personally by allowing me someone who's an auditory learner who needs to listen to things to understand them better, to listen to all of the books that I've been wanting to read and really get more out of them. I wanted to recommend Packing for Mars by Mary Roach because one, it's one of my all-time favorite books, and two, it'll teach you about all of the weird and wild things that have gone into making space travel possible. But you don't have to stop there. Audible has so many amazing audiobooks so you can fill your brain with whatever you want. I even have a Goodreads shelf filled with all of the books that I've listened to on Audible and have so many good recommendations if you need any. I'm going to link that on the episode notes for this episode. So to download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash research. Again, audibletrial.com slash research for a free audiobook. This episode of We Search is also sponsored by The Winfluencer. Their approach is simple. Brands are willing to pay for your attention and they're here to help you get your fair share. The Winfluencer hosts content from a variety of brands that you'll regularly encounter in a grocery store. By engaging with posts through likes and comments, you're entered to win a percentage of the money that brands have paid The Winfluencer to host their content. While traditional influencers boast large followings, most posts are less about the product and more about the halo of the influencer. The Winfluencer aims to strip out the access consideration with posts focused solely on the product by encouraging actual engagement and interaction. The Winfluencer is backed by research, but it's also an experiment in advertising. You can participate by following at the underscore Winfluencer on Instagram for your chance to win actual money. Terms and conditions apply, so see thewinfluencer.com for more details. Again, that's at the underscore winfluencer, W-I-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E-R on Instagram. I know that you talked about who your advisor was, but like, who does advise you on your research? Yeah, so my professor, Dr. Christopher Limbach, he basically, he knew who I was, he saw my strengths, and he said, I want you to kind of oversee this project and, like, manage the project. So I work with two undergrads, and together we kind of come up with the action plan for what needs to happen and any big decisions, or if we get stuck, as most people do in research, like, yeah. You go down a rabbit hole and you need somebody to pull you out of the rabbit hole. So that's where he comes in and he keeps the big picture in mind and the actual knowledge of how things work. And we just report to him every week. He keeps us out of the rabbit hole and keeps us focused. So you're working with a bunch of groups of people. So like the people who are doing the simulation side and other people who are doing like things with plasma. Uh, does working collaboratively 
with those people affect that the way that you're doing your research or does it inspire you in any way to do more research? It definitely, so I do woodworking all the time and the things I learn from woodworking actually influence how I work on a daily basis with this crazy laser particle beam <laughs> research that you don't think has an effect, but yeah. getting everybody's input from these diverse backgrounds, um, like I've been helping other people with their projects and we have weekly meetings every week to uh, basically describe where we are with our projects, any problems we have, and then we get the zeitgeist from a group and basically if anybody has any solutions to this problem we all brainstorm it and that has solved a lot of our issues just getting all of our backgrounds together and coming up with solutions so i think it's crucial for anybody doing research or solving problems to get as much of a diverse background into the room and talking as possible so like is it kind of like a group project in high school (laughs) or (laughs) is it better than that I like to think it's better than that. There's not the person <laughs> off in the corner just texting the whole time. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's it's good. Everybody wants to be there and is like super excited about their research. Oh, that's so exciting. And it, oh my gosh. So those those really help you get solutions to your problem, but it also fuels you because you're surrounded by people who want to be there and know they're pushing the edge of science and they really love it. Oh, that's so awesome. Oh my gosh. Uh, So are those people, are they coming from similar backgrounds to you where they're like, they did their undergrad in some kind of engineering and are moving into that? Or are there people who did something maybe completely different and are bringing something completely new to the table? So yeah, I mean, the backgrounds are mostly engineers, but we work really closely with somebody who's an aircraft, uh, aircraft mechanic at the lab. He's our go-to guy for if we need to make something, if we need design input on a part or anything, we go to him. And he's just got that wisdom and the experience knowledge that makes makes our, because engineers will overthink things for days and make a really yeah. complex part. <laughs> but somebody who actually works with these things, they, they really help simplify it. Yeah, because I think, is it kind of one of those things where he's like, well, this is a lot easier if I do this or like, Hey, when I'm working, like, I'm not going to care about that. Is it sort exactly. of like that? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I totally get that from like the design perspective too. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, if you're working on a project and you're sitting there forever, you'll make it more complicated. Mm-hmm. But all it takes is somebody who hasn't seen it to come in and say, well, why'd you do it like that? Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. So what is the research process like? Are you reading things? Are you trying things out? What what are you what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Uh, so currently, I came down to Texas A and M this summer, and since the system wasn't built, I've been working with everybody in my team to design the system, uh, slowly building it together, and then ultimately testing it piece by piece until we get the actual system up and running entirely. So while it's not exactly the research of the beam, it's designing the system that we can research the beam. And hopefully as I get into classes more, I'll be able to actually test the light and particle beam interaction. Um, So right now my day-to-day is a lot of trying to study up on the physics behind it while also Uh designing, ordering parts and turning a wrench to get them to fit together. (laughs) All right. So you're more coming up with like kind of this like firsthand experience 
is part of the data that you're collecting instead of like coming up with numbers and analyzing them, right? Correct. Yeah. We don't have any numbers to show yet, except for basically how low a vacuum we can get. Oh, okay. How high a vacuum, how low a pressure. Sorry, I had to yeah. switch up. Okay. No, you're fine. Yeah. So that, um, we're not really getting many actual like hard numbers. Yeah. 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 I feel like definitely what it sounds like you're doing is very hands-on instead of like making graphs and comparing numbers and all of that exactly which is what i love like <laughs> i said i don't want to i hate sitting at a desk all day it's something i yeah. i really hate um and every place i've worked before this i have like told my employers that i want to kind of have a balance between going and working in a shop and sitting at a desk and like crunching numbers and doing a problem or two yeah yeah keeps the juices flowing <laughs> is that kind of what gets you most hype about doing the work that you do is being able to trade off between doing like the math and all of that and being able to be hands-on kind of i mean for me the the thing that gets me the most hype is i keep that big picture in the background of my mind like going making a spacecraft that can go so fast is something that really gets me really hype and then being able to work on it on such a microscopic level where I'm actually turning the wrench also gets me really excited yeah because I I don't want to be the kind of guy that just dictates to somebody else hey go do this and then I never actually see the physical product I'm down there working on it with them and also helping design it upstairs that's so cool oh yeah. my gosh do you feel like a bit of a science celebrity because you are funded by NASA or is that is that making you more hype what is that doing for you <laughs> so far i haven't met anybody from nasa but um okay i'm sure as soon as i do meet somebody from nasa i'll be like very very excited and <laughs> feel a little bit like a celebrity from yeah them. but like i'm working with you yeah so right now i kind of feel just like a normal grad student with my head slightly above water yeah but then you also get that cool thing of like, well, I'm kind of doing work for NASA. Yeah. You can be real cool and people know what that is. I can wear a NASA hat without being a poser. Yeah. And like, it's not like I you're just making it up. I probably a bunch of people with that. Sorry, <laughs> people who wear NASA hats and don't work at NASA. Okay, I just wanted to take a second here so I can talk about my favorite tweet. Um, okay, so my favorite tweet is from Dustin Grawick, Uh and... I'm linking this so you can retweet this in the episode notes. It's so good. New rule. If you're wearing a NASA shirt and you walk past somebody else wearing a NASA shirt, you have to nod and say, see you at the office. <laughs> it's it's like that thing where like, you're like, oh, you know NASA, I do something like that. This is like, <laughs> no, you know NASA, I do that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now I feel like a science celebrity. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so is the research that you do something that you do just at your job or are you like taking that home, doing it for fun, like trying to learn as much as possible in your spare time? My research. So in my spare time, uh, I do woodworking when I had my shop. Um, but I also like to watch just weird physics videos, um, and engineering videos. So in a way, my research is something I take home with me, but it's, on a tangent so it's not something yeah. direct but also what i learned there i applied to my research 
uh, pretty much daily. Um, but I do take it home and I try and go above and beyond what I'm required to do. Uh, yeah. Just because I'm so interested in this project and it's a chance to like leave my mark on a really, really important thing for all the humans. Yeah. So I know I already asked what does research look like for you, but are you doing like a lot of reading besides like doing on the ground exploration, building things? Unfortunately, yes, I am doing a lot of reading. And <laughs> yeah. growing up, I was never somebody who read books. Uh, yeah. Reading was something I absolutely hated. Um, I could never, my attention span was always horrible when it came to reading. I was always losing my train of thought. Yeah. Um, so I feel like a lot of people are in that boat with you, though. Yeah. And like... <laughs> I think most people realize or start to think like, oh, I can't learn like this concept because reading is not interesting to me and I can't sit through a textbook. But yeah. luckily for me, I found out that YouTube offers almost <laughs> everything you need to know. So yeah. I go to, when, I, when I need to learn a topic, I just go to YouTube and I'm a big audio visual learner. So Same here. yeah, having yep. those videos actually is where I get most of my education. I got sent a bunch of links to YouTube videos that relate to what we're talking about in this episode. They're all linked on my website in the blog post about this episode. Uh, thank you to Hayden for sending me those or else I totally would not have understood a lot of this. Um, but you can learn a lot about stuff from YouTube as I definitely learned in high school, especially when it comes to really weird science processes that require transfers of energy and all of that stuff. So links to those YouTube videos will be in the blog post. Bye. Education is something that I also feel like I struggled with for a while where I'm like, why do people like learning? But now <laughs> I'm like the kind of person who's like, oh my God, I love learning, you guys. But it's because of like me getting off on YouTube click holes of like, here's some facts about spiders that you never wanted to know. Like yeah, stuff like I that. It, I think some of that comes from like, you're actually seeking it out. So you're devoting yeah. the attention to what you sought out rather than having a book placed in front of you, which may not be something you want to learn. Yeah. Yeah. So you definitely want to learn more about what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have some audience questions. Okay. Are you ready to get into this? All right. So Anissa asked why Hyperloop versus a high speed rail? And she included like five question marks. Uh. <laughs> So I kind of alluded to it earlier, but with the high-speed rail, you're in the open air, and as you put more power and therefore money into your transport system, you're fighting more and more air as a function of that airspeed squared. So uh -huh. the benefit of Hyperloop is it takes away that air, and you're able to go like twice the speed. And America's never been one to really try to catch up to other countries. We want to go above and beyond, so that's why yeah. we're trying to do the Hyperloop. Okay. Uh, is there like an environmental benefit to Hyperloop versus a high-speed rail? Is Will it use less fuel, basically? Uh, yes, actually, because, well, All right. it, kind of. So you have to weigh the fuel consumption of the vacuum pumps, but okay. it should be more economical. Like kind of in the long term, like it might use more to get it up and running, yeah. but in the long term, it's not as regularly consuming yes, a ton it should be okay i don't have hard numbers 
but there might be if you research a little bit into the hyperloop there might be something that, that says it's more efficient than high, uh, high speed rail i would believe it i'm thinking along the lines of like teslas are more expensive but in the long run you'll spend less money on gas sort of thing yeah yeah so there's that and then like where the high speed rail is spending so much energy yeah. just fighting air you're not spending that okay. energy fighting air so yeah should be and then another benefit is you're able to stick these concrete tunnels underground so one of elon musk's other pet projects yeah. is the boring company <laughs> which uh they are working on a tunnel that basically could be okay. used for hyperloop so super long t underground tunnels that are supposed to be able to navigate traffic okay um all right yeah so a very loaded question coming up. <laughs> Ellen asked, is this the same job that Vilma had when they reunited in the airport to Spooky Island in the 2002 live-action Scooby-Doo movie? And if so, was Vilma the inspiration for this career choice? And I, I did ask her what this meant. She said, she worked at NASA developing hydro-powered missile defense systems, which is a direct quote from the movie. I don't remember in that movie <laughs> when they, if yeah. they ever delved into it's, Velma's It's background. overshadowed by Scooby-Doo coming out in drag like two seconds later, so. <laughs> yep. That does it. There, <laughs> there goes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, okay. That makes sense. So I did, am I allowed to spoil yeah. that I had these questions oh, yeah. out before? Totally fine. Okay. So I did a, <laughs> I did a little research into what hydropower was and i knew that so basically if you ever go out in like a park you may see kids playing with water-powered rockets and basically what they're doing is they have a water bottle that they're filling with air pressure which is going to force the water out and with rockets the more mass you put throw out at a higher speed the more thrust you get so they're the whole principle behind hydropower is how do I send this weight of water out at as fast as I can? And that ultimately isn't a good source of propulsion. The way rockets currently work is they take this chemical energy along with the mass of the propellants and they add what's called enthalpy to it, which is essentially uh, basically a way to increase the energy when it comes out. So that gives you in turn more thrust. So while Velma's cool, her research may have been a little bit better if it wasn't okay. hydropower. <laughs> I just kind of assumed hydropower was like a cool speedboat, so. <laughs> oh shoot, it might be. I don't Man, even know. I don't know. <laughs> I need to go watch the 2002 live-action Scooby-Doo movie. Do we have to say TM? Oh my god. After we say the 2002 live-action Scooby-Doo movie TM. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, hi. Like most things on the show, I did some investigating. Hydropower is the conversion of energy from moving water into electromagnetic energy that we can use to power things. Let's think of it this way. We've probably all seen a big water mill on TV. That big wheel gets turned by the energy of the rushing river water, which converts the kinetic energy of the moving water into mechanical energy, which makes the wheel turn. In these old-fashioned style mills, 
The mechanical energy that the wheel creates allows the mill workers to do things like grind grain easily. We use a very similar process in hydro plants today. Water causes turbines to spin, the turbines are connected to generator systems, and they're then able to convert the mechanical energy into electricity that can be used to power the community. So they're a great source of renewable energy for communities that live near running water, but they're not so great when it comes to generating enough energy to blast off. So wrapping up, um, why is your research important? Or why do you think it's important? So I think it's important because, I mean, humans in general have always wondered what's out there. Like when the European settlers were looking out at the ocean, they wondered what's out there. When we finally realized we had most of the continents discovered, we looked up and wondered what's out there. And now that we know what what's out there, we want to get closer to what's out there and kind of we've been exploring our solar system. We still have a lot more to do, but going above and beyond that and paving the way for the new, the new exploration is something that gets me really excited. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. Um, so what kind of impact do you think what you are learning now is going to have? Or do you hope it has? So I, I hope it'll start allowing people to send more spacecraft into a new solar system to understand it better and basically see if there's any planets of interest and whether or not it'd be worth it to send uh, an interstellar mission to a new solar system and whether or not that happens to have that capability and the research behind it is still something incredibly valuable but another thing i hope that my research gives uh, the public is I get knowledge on this topic and I'm able to share it with other people and hopefully inspire them to either become scientists, engineers, or even be scientifically literate because that's <laughs> honestly a more scientifically literate is population is more important than everybody becoming scientists and engineers. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm very hoping that the work I'm doing on this and other people are doing with science communication makes people more scientifically literate or at least excited in learning about science so that it advances what people are doing with yeah, funding and, I, and all that. I do like what you're doing with the podcast because like diving into research papers is incredibly horrible. If you have zero yeah. <laughs> on a subject, you're not going to get caught up in a research paper. Yeah. You're going to struggle bust through the abstract and yeah. Yeah, so like breaking it down and doing all this general stuff, I think is a really, really good way for the general population to actually understand where we are with the current state of research without them having to like understand every term in an abstract. Yeah. So, so kudos. <laughs> Thank you. This is me fishing for compliments. <laughs> well, it's not, but I appreciate it. Um, do you have a favorite resource about what you do uh, as far as like nonfiction goes, because I know I asked you about like fictional. Things. Yeah, so I mean, whenever I come up to a topic like laser cooling or parts of the laser cooling, it's always go to YouTube. Um, I don't have like a book repository, even though I probably should. Um, but like I said, I'm that audio visual uh, audio visual learner and. Ultimately, I would rather go to a person rather than read an article 
if I can learn the same thing from a person and ask mm -hmm. them questions, I'd retain it so much better. So I try to get the mix of YouTube with actual human interaction more <laughs> than I more than I go to reading papers. Yeah. And like I I really do appreciate you figuring out how you learn and using that to explore new ways to learn. I think Thanks. that was that was something that I struggled with up until like college. And now this is just me fishing for compliments. Yeah. No, I <laughs> I I'm so forward, like so supportive of people doing those like quizzes that are like, are you like an auditory learner or a visual learner? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think somehow like the school system still frowns upon people that don't learn the way that they teach. Yeah. And there's a bunch of professors who aren't willing to accept that and change their methods to kind of engage their students. And that's where the education system kind of falls flat. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> Do, do, do. Here's the time of the show where I tell you how to relate what we learned back to your life. Yes, everyone's probably favorite part. I don't know. It's mine. Okay, so doing physics and hard science and math isn't everyone's thing. Personally, I have a very hard time doing it. So figuring out the science and understanding it behind all of these concepts was really hard for me, which is part of why this episode is going up so late. Um, but as me and Hayden talked about, don't let what you struggle with learning about in a classroom setting make you give up learning about things that you're passionate about. You're allowed to be someone who has trouble in school or dislikes learning in a classroom setting, but still loves to learn. Knowing more about subjects that interest you is exciting. And if there's one thing that I've learned from talking to all of these researchers, it's that they keep learning because they want to. So what helped me figure out how to enjoy learning more and how to get more out of it is taking a learning styles quiz. The one that I am linking on my website in the show notes is the VARC questionnaire. That stands for visual, oral, which is listening, reading and writing, and kinesthetic, which means like moving around and learning how to do things with your hands. And... By taking that quiz, it can help you figure out ways that you learn best, um, and that can help you determine better strategies for figuring out how you learn things and how to remember it. That really helped me figure out those strategies in school, and it still took me a really long time to figure out, you know, what are the best strategies for me, but being able to understand that I learn best through listening and by writing things out really helped me figure that out. Being able to learn is really amazing. And just because you may struggle in a classroom doesn't mean that you can't enjoy learning and enjoy finding out as much as you can about a certain topic. But, you know, hot takes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, is there something that you wish people would know about what you do that would make your life easier as far as, like, explaining what you do or you know, like myths that you want to bust? The biggest thing <laughs> I wish people understood was how important NASA is. Uh, back in the Cold War, like, we were spending so much money into NASA because that's where our arms race money went into, and they only received 4.5% of the federal budget. So out of a dollar that you give the government in your taxes, 4.5 pennies go to NASA. And now it's... Should be, I think it's less than a penny. Yeah. Now oh, their pay is like less than a penny. 
and they're doing so many incredible things with just that. If we were to suddenly realize how important NASA is and get it back up to its heyday funding or even close to it, the amount of science that we could do is incredible. Uh, so when people say like, why are we spending so much money up there when we have so many problems down here? We're already spending like a lot of money down here. And <laughs> what we learn up there absolutely brings back uh, help down to earth. Like when astronauts go to a new planet, they're going to need water reclaimers and things that give them fresh drinking water. That's something that's directly applicable to down here. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I want to hit home to the public is know what NASA does and love what NASA does and the other space <laughs> agencies, the European Space Agency, uh, Japanese Space Agency, JAXA, and then Roscosmos. NASA has developed or funded research into technology that you probably use every single day, or at least I do. Anyway, NASA's Technology Transfer Program, or T2, works under the mission statement of bringing NASA technology down to Earth. Through their program and their publication, which is called Spinoff, T2 brings technology that was developed by NASA researchers into the private sector, funds new research, and provides patents that they've developed through the public domain to help fuel new inventions. Some of these technologies that they've developed are memory foam mattresses, LED lights, cordless vacuum cleaners, and different kinds of water purifiers. So what is something that makes you go, whoa? I mean, what makes me excited, or what makes me go, whoa, is just thinking, like, only a couple hundred years ago, we were fighting wars with swords and just charting the seas. And now, like, a couple years, a uh, hundred years into the future, we're actually sending humans into space and leaving the huge rock that we had just explored not too long ago. And to think where we'll be in the next hundred years as we go forward is something that's completely mind-boggling to me. That makes me go, whoa. And then what makes you excited to learn more? Uh, I'd say just that my the basis of my research was founded on so many Nobel Prize winners that it's just amazing that I'm able to take what they learned and further it and actually apply it. And that kind of makes me learn, want to learn more and dive deeper into the subject and get a bigger understanding. You can throw something in here about the quote, who had the quote where if it's because I see so far, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. I like that quote. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I mm -hmm. will look that up. Okay. I spent a while trying to figure out who actually said this quote and Basically, the concept of I stand on the shoulders of giants has been traced all the way to the 12th century, but is most often attributed to Isaac Newton, who said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So thanks, Isaac Newton, for saying that and also discovering gravity. Okay. Um, is there anything <laughs> coming up that you're excited about? So... Back when we were researching into the episode, uh, Lightsail 2 hadn't been launched yet, but it by now it's been launched. <laughs> They've been doing amazing things with it. And it's something that I'm really excited about because it's paving the way for non-traditional propulsion methods. So we're starting to stray away from the rocket equation and go into something that's completely new and pushing the boundaries of what we can achieve. Okay, so where can people find your work? So you can find my work at, you can follow us on Instagram at L-D-P-D-L-A-B, 
So it's LDPD Lab on Instagram. Okay. You can visit our website at ldpdl.engr.tamu.edu. Or if you want to see what I've did in the past with my past research papers, you can search the parameters influencing their aggression rate of solid rocket fuels. If you want to, if you're interested in rockets, or you can follow <laughs> me on LinkedIn at Hayden Morgan. All right. I'll link all of these in the show notes Perfect. so that people can find them instead of like listening to that clip on repeat where I'm just sputtering acronyms. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <laughs> then if people want to gently stalk you on social media and look at cute pictures of your dog, um, where can they find you? You can follow me on Instagram at Hayden Morgan 1996. And it is filled with pictures of my dog and my woodworking and soon to be my research. Yay. Yay. We made it through all the questions. Perfect. Thanks for sitting through me talking this long. No, this was cool. I'm, I had a good time. This was a good conversation. I honestly, honestly doing the interviews is the best part of doing this. It makes me so excited. Chef's kiss. Beautiful interview. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you, Em. Thanks again to Hayden for sitting down with me for this over two hour long interview. You can find links, diagrams, and more helpful info about what we talked about at mmuir.com slash research. Thank you to Alex Brown for providing the music for this and all episodes of WeSearch. A link to more of his music is in the episode description. Thank you to all of the people who support this show with their money over at patreon.com slash research. Thank you to the people who have told me that they like the show and have told other people that they like the show. Thank you to Audible for sponsoring this episode. I wouldn't have the smarts that I have now without being able to learn from listening to a lot of the sources that I use, and I'm really grateful to Audible for both supporting the show and my lil brain. And thank you to you for listening to WeSearch. So many thank yous. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I'm currently working super hard to share my excitement about learning with as many people as possible and hoping that I can help build research literacy along the way. So if you're a researcher and want to share your work or just very excited about learning and want to talk about it, please reach out to me at researchpod at gmail.com. And you can follow along at researchpod on both Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Bye. Yeah? Totoro's got something to say.